0: The libertarian podcast from the hoover institution i'm your host tom church and the libertarian is professor richard epstein richard's the peter and kirsten bedford senior fellow here at the hoover institution he's the lawrence a tisch professor of law at nyu and he's a senior lecturer at the university of chicago And, Richard, today I'd like to talk to you about a controversy that arose following the opening of a seat on the Supreme Court. As you know, President Biden made a campaign pledge to nominate the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. And with Justice Breyer's retirement, it looks like he will attempt to keep that pledge. Um, Some people have questioned whether it's fair or appropriate to exclude candidates based solely on their race or gender, (laughs) including uh, uh, Ilya Shapiro, a senior lecturer at, at Georgetown Law, Uh, Shapiro got in trouble for a poorly worded tweet uh, in which he'd suggested uh, another candidate, an Indian uh, American candidate, and then ended with, but alas, doesn't fit into the latest intersectionality hierarchy, so it will get lesser black woman. Um, This tweet he deleted, he apologized for, but in response, Shapiro has been put on paid administrative leave while an investigation is made into his series of tweets. But what do you think should happen to Shapiro in this situation?
1: Well, I mean, I have to first make a disclosure, Ilya, Shapiro was one of my very strong students. We always make jokes about Roman law on either the libertarian or on law talk, but he was one of my Roman law students. I had him in other courses. Um, He is a Russian immigrant who understands the way in which the world works in terms of oppression. Uh, He was at the Cato Institute where talking about... ideas in the libertarian sense were very common. He goes into the Georgetown environment. Uh, this tweet came on this first day of taking there, and I don't think he understood the nature of the local culture for things that would be tolerated in one set of places are not in the others. I think he tried to beat a retreat, but one of the things that we discovered today is apologies are never sufficient, no matter how heartfelt they meant. There was probably huge student demand uh, to get him there because at the same time this is taking place, there is at Georgetown a major advise the curriculum so as to make some version of critical race studies a requirement not only in the, the specific case of a course on that issue, but building units of that into first-year courses dealing with such courses as criminal law and property. So he ran into a milestone. I did write the sign, the letter written by others saying, whatever you think of the particular tweet, um, uh, this is not the appropriate situation. And uh, what you do need is you have to have some voices, and that even includes people who. Th- the position that was taken by Biden was not correct. So turning to that for a moment, uh, I've seen several columnists make the following kind of observation. Biden was absolutely right to do this, but 75% of the American public turns out to be against it. Presumably, those are the unwashed people who've never thought about it. Uh, People have also said, and I think it's got some force to it, uh, that when Ronald Reagan came into office, he was quite intent appointing a woman and chose Sandra Day O'Connor. And she too had, as judged by the state, Relatively weak academic and judicial uh, credentials. She came from an intermediate court in Arizona and turned out to be a stronger judge, I think, than any of those things might have suggested earlier on. Uh, similar promises were made by Donald Trump when he appointed Amy Coney Barrett, who did have a stronger academic record. Uh, so the question that people constantly ask is Is there a difference between women and not women? Uh, to dogmatists who say we're colorblind and sexblind, there's no difference. Uh, to people who are a little wavy on this. They said, look, if you change the pool a little bit to cover women and perhaps minorities, uh, different minorities, Asians, Indians, whatever, it's a very much more expanded pool. The pool of uh, seasoned black appellate judges or trial judges is relatively small. If you just looked at the District of Columbia Circuit Court, there are at least three strongly Democratic judges who have much stronger records. Um, the Chief Judge, Srinivasan, and then Judge Pillard and and kate or oh, millet um who are you know have very strong records in terms of what they've done i disagree with much of what they say but it's really hard to sort of put yourself behind somebody who's just been elevated to the circuit courts and has not done anything himself even this turns out to be a debatable proposition because asuda was appointed to the Supreme Court literally within days i think after he was appointed to the uh, first circuit in uh New Hampshire. And Justice Tyrone Thomas had very little appellate experience as well. He was on the District of Columbia Court. And so it's going to be all things to all people. My own preference is to worry more about excellence than any of this other stuff. Uh, generally speaking, I have not a heretical view, but my view is that people who are able, steeped in the law, and deeply committed, no matter what their positions are, are able to put forward a range of constructive instructions on all sides of the political spectrum I've cast and have put there solely because of who they are by way of race, sex, creed, age, or whatever it is. So I tend to be uh, very much on the other side. Uh, What will happen in this case is a prediction. Nobody can say for sure. Um, There's going to be a lot of public sentiment in it. But my guess is that there'll be several Republicans, probably women senators, who will go along and the Democrats will be a phalanx so that uh, she will get through, is my thing. Whoever she is, the most likely candidate is, I think... uh, G. Jackson, who was just appointed to the District of Columbia Circuit Court of Appeals, um, Would I support it? I think the answer is no, because I'm more on the merit side of this thing. On the other hand, I tend to be relatively deferential to uh, presidential nominees with respect to justices. But, you know, that's a lot easier to do when you think all well, the potential pool people in the pool are very, very strong and you don't have a real preference for somebody who's an A-plus over somebody who is just an A. On balance, I think, although there's lots of things on both sides of this, I would tend to vote against these nominations. This is a lot harder to do because generally I was always in favor of relatively strong deference, but that was in an era when you had A-plus candidates against A candidates. But in this case, the gaps may be large.
0: Let's go over to the student reactions because I think that is driving a lot of the behavior coming from the Georgetown Law School um, in response to Shapiro. Uh, One of the statements uh, ends with this Pending the outcome of the investigation, he, Shapiro, will remain on leave and not be on campus. That is not enough. Shapiro's rhetoric is not welcome at Georgetown Law, period. Richard, I want to ask you what sort of mindset would you like to see students adopt in these situations? I mean, how would you counsel them? Uh, as to their understanding of the term harm, which I think governs limits on free speech, and
1: it's also probably motivating their reactions to what Shapiro said. Okay, well, I think the first thing is a very dangerous tendency, and it could easily take base on both times, to think that your own upset or offense that you take of somebody else's remarks are sufficient warrants in order to shut them down. Because one of the things that it does is it creates a very strong sentiment for polarization so that if you really want to get somebody who says something that's mildly offensive, you treat it as though it's the final offensive thing on the face of the earth if you compare what uh, Shapiro said to the kinds of statements that were routinely made 50, 60s, and 70 years ago, the thing would be utterly innocuous. So I think it's bad to sort of take that stand because you then build it larger. The second thing I think what it does, and the students may want this, is it creates an enormous chilling effect about anybody who says something. So he may have used the wrong words, but are we supposed to say that anybody who's opposed to uh, Ms. Jackson's nomination or to the Biden policy of hiring only women has taken that and therefore that they too do not belong at Georgetown Law School. At that point, what happens is the harm principle becomes a real tool in order to essentially oppress and suppress speech by people who disagree with you. And it turns these institutions from institutions of higher learning to institutions where they're highly dramatic and dogmatic situations. This is not unexpected. Georgetown is probably overwhelmingly uh, liberal in terms of its faculty. And by liberal, I don't mean center-left. I mean hard time leftist, today, for whom race, gender, and all the rest of that stuff is really absolutely dominant. And what it does is it makes it very impossible for somebody who has a different point of view to even want to come to a faculty like this, where they are promised to face a certain degree of ostracism and hostility, but it also impoverishes Georgetown. And so they are putting together a program right now, which is designed to make critical race studies uh, an essential part of all first-year courses, like Torts and so forth, um, and and criminal law, and also to make separate courses in this. So somebody said, "Would you like to teach property?" And I said, "Absolutely." are you willing to talk about property in relationship to slavery? I said, well, of course I'm willing to do that. I did teach a course in slavery with a connection with Roman law, and I've certainly worked on all of those issues in connection with American constitutional law, of which Dred Scott is only one of many cases of a sorry legacy that we are well rid of. But the question is, given the fact that I will have different interpretations as to how some of these cases should be understood, I'm not sure. And so what happens is if you design a curriculum which is only teachable by people who have a certain point of view, what you've done is you've gotten rid of an essential component of a free society in which all ideas are welcome, and then you thrash them out on their merits. What happens is what they want to do is use the principle of harm to preclude arguments from people who happen to disagree. And you see that at all sorts of modern institutions. And I just don't believe that that's an appropriate way to do it. So, you know, I and many of my friends and lots of people I don't know did sign a letter sent to Dean Trainer saying, you know, this is really an inappropriate situation. And I think one of the things that we should learn is that every sin is not a hanging sin, that lesser sanctions, apologies, and so forth are perfectly appropriate, and that to put somebody on administrative leave is to magnify the degree of harm, no matter what the particular and if the students who led the protests or the students are going to make the adjudication it's going to be a very long road for him I mean this is really something quite tragic. Um, Ilya was a tremendously effective advocate um, at the uh, Cato Institute. He was a terrific brief writer and did many of them and they were often I signed them or certainly supported them and he was also a very powerful intellectual force You know, running the uh, Cato Supreme Court review and so forth and, and to get somebody like that Town is to fill a real gap and to force him out because of a wayward remark seems to me to cause as much harm to the institution as it does to him how different
0: are things uh statements like this when made at a university versus in a in a in the private sector um you know i want to know when should someone be be canceled i mean can you say objectionable things if you're at a university but for example whoopi goldberg on the view made some you know terrible comments or ill thought comments on on the holocaust and is now on a two week uh uh, leave as well um i mean is that is that more appropriate allowable there
1: i mean look one One of the things that's really quite amazing is when I grew up, the way the world was divided is you had uh, corporations which were headed by rich guys and Democrats that were headed by unions. Um, The corporation side of this thing is completely turned over. If you look at the amount of corporate money that is Democratic, especially from the new tech industries, there was a recent study which says even the infamous dark money which the Democrats denounced when it was held by Republicans, there's more dark money on the Democratic side that is money difficult to trace than there is on the Republican side. All of these corporations have really very strong speech and conduct guides, uh, dealing with what we call ESG, which is the environment, um, oh my God, social responsibility and governance. And it's all hard left stuff. I've recently written in ways which I think that this is over the top. Uh, So I don't think that you could actually see that the corporate culture is wildly different from the university culture. What has happened in the United States is that virtually all of the major elites in the universities, in business, and in the press turn out to be relatively hard left and compared to what they had been, which means that if you're on the other side, what you tend to do is to go into enclaves like the Cato Institute Are not subject to that kind of censorship. At universities, um, it's very complicated. Uh, Some people are tolerated but not put within the power structure. Some people have made it feel extremely uncomfortable. Other people are actually welcomed with open arms on the grounds that diversity really matters. And on the same faculty, you can have very different factions with very different points of view. But I do think it's fair to say that if you're in the intellectual life today and wish to become some kind of a public intellectual, where you go, you are going to be subject to these kinds of risks, And I, I think they are very strong effects. You speak, for example, on harassment policy. The faculty member after faculty member, they will not say anything publicly, but privately they will say they dread the fact that somebody could make an accusation against them, because no matter how baseless those accusations are, you're going to be tarred for life. And so there's a kind of a routine open door policy. But more importantly, faculty members are somewhat reluctant men at least, to monitor younger women for fear that something like this could emerge out of those sorts of situations. Uh, It's not, you know, pervasive in the imminent sense, but it's a constant background drop that happens, that you're always going to cross some line and not be able to get back to safety on matters of race or sex or income inequality or racial behavior or whatever it is that turns out to be a touchstone. And, you know, I'm somebody whose views are out of sync with the entire left on virtually I regard myself as a libertarian, or more in common with somebody like Martin Luther King on some of these issues than they have in common with Martin Luther King, right? I'm a content of your character kind of guy in terms of my own behavior. And they are certainly not that when they have all these preconditions for hiring, which are associated with confessing loyalty and fealty to a program, which essentially I think is antithetical to open inquiry inside a university.
0: Last question for you. Uh, continuing on this division between universities and, and the private sector, we have several affirmative action cases coming up in the Supreme Court. Do you think there's a difference between what universities like Harvard have done with respect to discrimination against Asians compared to if, I guess, similar actions were done in the private sector?
1: Oh, there's a huge difference between the way in which these things start to behave, and for very simple reasons, which is if you're in business, you've got a profit motive hanging out there. And it turns out that uh, you cannot possibly, a technical department, using the same distribution of talents by race and sex that Harvard uses as submissions policy. Uh, because uh, when you're dealing with mathematics and hard scientists, all the rounding factors are much less important than your ability to perform at a very high level doing very abstract calculations. That's the only pool from which you can draw. And what's happened with modern law on discrimination is no longer do we have the constraint of a so-called availability pool. First, look at people who are qualified to do this particular job, i.e. all people with PhDs in mathematics, and then figure out what the ratios are in that group. Now it's discrimination. If you take the general population and you don't eat that and so even if only 1% of your PhDs were for a certain race, and it turns out that race is 10 to 12% of the population, and you hired more from that pool than from anybody else, you'd still be a racist because the applicable number isn't 2%. The applicable number is 15%. In businesses, you can't survive with that combination. Affirmative action has a very complicated origin when you start getting to hierarchical institutions, as all firms and governments are. Students are not particularly hierarchical. You take them all in their first-year students, They pick their majors and so forth. But you don't have any student who's going to have to run another student. You take somebody into business and what happens is you have kind of implicit tournaments, a well-known phrase by an economist, late economist named Sherwin Rosen. And so you start over the hundred people at the first level and have to go up the pyramid. Two things happen. The people have to be stronger. And it also there has to be fewer. And so the race of the competition is which of those 100 people are going to drop out. And so if your bottom pool is, say, 70 30% in one direction, where most of the strong people are in the 70% group rather than the 30% group, you then move to the second level, and it turns out you're not going to be 85 15 and, well, that becomes really very tricky. And so you say, well, let's redress it. But you can't redress it. Because the moment you redress it, you're going to have people of lesser ability and achievement trying to supervise younger people in the lower tier who, in fact, know more about the subject than they do. And so the way in which affirmative action is blunted in business, which makes it so difficult, is as you kind of talk about these supervisory arrangements, these hierarchical arrangements, these exceptional skills, you have to take into account that the business can't run with the same discipline distribution of talent at the top that you have at the bottom, uh, because you have to have stronger people at the top otherwise. And so affirmative action has always been met with a kind of not frostiness, everybody endorses it, uh, but the implementation is much more difficult to achieve. And so what happens is you then try to compensate. And if you're talking about not the ability to do technical work at Google, but be in the sales force or in the public relations department or the community service department, you'll have different ratios there. Uh, But as everybody knows in every business, the real power lies with those people who perform the core functions business. So if you're a lawyer in a law firm, you're a big shot. You're a lawyer in a corporation. You're an ancillary service to a corporation that's making computers. And you know that. And so it's not that you aren't important, but you're not defining the institution as it is. And so what defines the power structure in the institution is you promote people, for the most part, who come from an area uh, which is closely associated with its core functions. In a pharmaceutical company, the FDA and approval and legislation is such that often you do get very high people the legal department running the whole kind of operation. Franklin Fraser, I think is his name, the guy who ran more, Mur- still may run it, is exactly an illustration of that kind of person. But these businesses have very different kinds of constraints to them. And you have to think of, just to sum up the point, affirmative action is trying to deal with a dynamic policy and, and with job reassignments, promotions, and so forth, changes in corporate plans, and the fixed ratios that you're supposed to honor by having gaps in the so-called achievements in the non-record doesn't work as well in the corporate situation. So they talk a very similar game, but they play a somewhat different They have to.
0: That'll do it for this episode of the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on Defining Ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening.